0: Welcome to Between the Lines. I'm your host, Lou Palumbo. No shortage of issues to talk about, concerns, questions, so we're going to get right into the show. You know, the purpose of the show, so everyone is clear, is to kind of problem solve, dial down the rhetoric, the animosity, the polarization, and try to come to some sensible resolution to issues that are just plaguing us in this country, whether it's gun control, pro-choice, the borders, immigration, immigration, a myriad of issues that need to be spoken to intelligently without the arguing and without the attack and the less than productive criticism so i see i have some callers lined up i have my producers in my ear ryan and lloyd i hear ryan and lloyd may ask me a question as well so i welcome their questions caller number one hello lou hello shelly thank you for reaching out to me today how are things in colorado
1: Oh, it's beautiful here. We had snow just the past few days, but it's sunny and bright, and we're excited for the warmer weather and to get out.
0: Are you an avid skier?
1: Um, no, but I am an avid hiker hiker and cyclist, so this is my season coming up.
0: Yeah, interesting. <laughs> I've, I've been to Colorado a couple of times um, through the holiday season in Aspen, Ajax Mountain, and oh, even Vail. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful state. Really beautiful state. I know you have a question today, Shelley. So without holding you up any longer, can I ask you if you'd be kind enough to present it?
1: Absolutely. And thanks for the opportunity. Um, so I've been working remote remotely during COVID, um, as have millions of other people. And so I had a question for you about this. Um, you know, for example, there was a company before I was interested in, and I understood that they did not allow remote work. And so to me, that was, well... They're not flexible, um, and I know that other companies have said, "Well, we don't have that," or it's it's maybe one day a week. But companies that didn't think that they could allow remote work have had no choice and have been forced to adjust. And I think it's been, at least from an, a you know an employee perspective, very successful. Like I'm my colleagues and I, you know, we just not having that commute, we find a lot more time for family and just it's less stressful. And somebody. I know when things start back up again, when somebody wouldn't have to try to leave really early and make it to their kids' soccer game or something. I mean, it just, I think, just reduces the overall stress. And so I wondered about your thoughts on a tr- if this trend, how this might fundamentally shift um, companies being more flexible. But also, I think another trend that I've, I have read about, too, is People don't have to be tied to their work location as much. So
0: this is an interesting question you're posing, Shelley, and it's one yeah. that I'm speaking to on a regular basis because it's going to dramatically impact the revitalization of our major cities. Um, mm. You can probably mm-hmm. tell from my attitude and my accent, I'm from New York.
1: Yes. So uh-huh.
0: sorry about that. But in any case, um, you know, recently I heard on one of the media outlets that they polled the working force, and they said 60% would prefer to continue to work from home. Obviously, what that really lends itself to Less expense, less wear and tear on your body, to be honest with you, sitting Mm -hmm. in traffic. Just overall, it's going to be healthier for the workforce, number one. Number two, there is some correlation to how it will impact our cities. For example, if let's say hypothetically 50% of the workforce that would normally commute into the city of New York suddenly stopped, that would have a dramatic, dramatic effect on business there. Hotels, Mm -hmm. restaurants, pharmacies, little bodega delicatessens, all types of uh, mass transit. Mass transit will mm. have a lot mm-hmm. less, uh, uh, how would you say, patronage. So it's, it's interesting. On one hand, we're going to witness the worker have a better quality of life, reduce the stress, reduce cost. But the flip side to that is it will dramatically impact the economy. Now, I do want to speak the, to the business owner. Some of the business owners have, have gotten the memo here and they realize that if you're productive at home, why are they paying $150 a square foot for commercial space in buildings in New York City? Why not give some of it back, which reduces their cost drivers? So if this is managed intelligently and you can continue to motivate the workers to be productive remotely. It's a win-win situation because if you're productive from home, working from your computer in your office, why do I need to pay for a cubicle or an office for you in midtown Manhattan or for that matter, Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, D.C.? You know the major cities. You're living in the same country I'm in. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting the different mentalities. I think when you spoke about com- companies without flexibility, I think their first concern is the productivity of the worker. I think they're concerned that they will not get their a bang for the buck, so to speak, if you're sitting at home. But only time will tell. And in fact, time has told. Obviously, it is working. People are being productive at home. Are they going to be 100% productive as they were um, sitting in the office? Maybe not, but we'll put an equation together if you're saving two fifty thousand dollars on office space and you're about twenty percent less productive if you start to do the math, the business owners may still very very well still be ahead as far as a business owner not exploring or having a dialogue with the work workplace or the workforce as to this remote working, I couldn't understand explain that you know there was some job Shelly, you have to know up you got to show you got to show up for these yes. jobs nurses yes. cops firemen doctors, you can't do this in absentia the way some of the workforce can. But I'll tell you something interesting. A friend of mine in New Jersey, his son worked in a company in Manhattan where they had 21 floors of office space. They called him up and said, come in, clean out your office. We're going to let you work remotely from home. When we need you, we'll bring you into the city. They gave back 18 floors. Of commercial office space. So you have to realize what that translates to in cost drivers to a business owner. So there needs to be mm-hmm. a discussion here. And once again, civil and intelligent and an exchange where everybody can walk away happy. And I think that potential exists today. The only downside is how it's going to dramatically impact the economies, for example, like City of New York, L.A., Chicago, where they rely on commutation in and out and subsequently supporting all of their support mechanisms, the restaurants, as I mentioned earlier, pharmacies, and it goes on and on from there. So this is a very, very good question. A lot of people are thinking about it. I've actually spoken to it on a number of occasions because it's going to dramatically impact my home. There's going to be less need to go through the wear and tear and heartache of coming into New York City. I'll tell you something interesting going on In New York City as well. A lot of vehicular traffic. People are not taking mass transit. Reason being, safety. The crime Mm -hmm. in our major cities is going through the roof. That is also influencing the workforce or deterring them from wanting to come back into our urban environments. Last week, our shootings in New York City were up 200%. That is absolutely incredible. Last weekend, there were 38 shootings in Chicago. Why in God's name would you ever want to insert yourself into an environment where you could become part of what we refer to as collateral damage? Not a lot of discussions around this. Um, They need to be, as I said, intelligently conducted. But I think this was a wonderful question. I think it's something knocking on our door right now because we're starting to open up again. You're starting to see the timelines being presented by the May, uh, the governor in Florida, New York, New Jersey, Vegas, etc., etc., and we're going to have to cross this road, cross this bridge at some point and start to figure out how we're going to reinvent the workforce. But I am, I am confident and encouraged that people will have a better quality of life. I know we value money more than anything on the planet in this country. But there's nothing like your mental health, your, uh, the time you can, you'll have, as you alluded to, to spend with your children. It's going to enhance the quality of your life. And if the business owners are intelligent and they can be the architect of a format or a plan, I think everybody will walk away happy. So um, that's it. Do you have, can I help you with anything else or do you have a, a, a follow-up comment?
1: Well, I I hadn't thought about that with the, the crime connection, and that is interesting. And, and you're right; it's a win-win, except for some of the bigger cities where there's going to be a loss of like a, an, an exit. And you being from New York, that's clearly um, don't spread on that your around mind. either, will you, please. Yeah. So, but but one other comment too, like quality, quality of life, it enabled my coworker to be able to be months with her, her ailing parents in a state that normally she would be able to just work from there. So there's so much flexibility. It's positive for people, but yeah, how the bigger cities, um, are going to adjust will be an interesting question.
0: There's a whole nother tangential discussion about the major cities and the trouble that they're in right now, uh, Shelley. which I don't want to take up any more of your time or undertake. It really should be another question posed to me independent of your exchange mm-hmm. with me. But the major cities are in trouble and the leadership in these particular cities better take a good look at what we're doing because we're going to lose our tax base. And that's what's happening in New York right now. That's also part of the problem of people no longer commuting into the borough of Manhattan, for example, to for the purpose of working. You know, we're going to lose your tax base there, and it's happening already. You, you started to touch upon people leaving New York. They're leaving the New York metropolitan area in mass numbers. Some of it is tied to economics, political policies, the crime, overall quality of life. You know, I hate to say this and indict my home, but coming from there. And I'm born and raised there. I went to grammar school, high school, college. I was in law enforcement. There's just a lack of civility right now, not just in New York City, not just in that city, but all the cities. And it has a lot to do with the way that these cities are being managed, or as I would say, not being managed. If you look Mm. at what's going on, for example, in Portland and Seattle, there's no explanation for this. If you were a homeowner, a business owner, or you had children in these environments, why in God's name would you want to be there under any circumstances? And why would you ever want to commute into these places where they might set, decide just randomly to set up autonomous zones and you get trapped in it? This is a big discussion, Shelley. Your question was the impetus to this gigantic discussion, which needs to continue to take place. And as I said, you know, when we introduced this show, it all has to do with how we're addressing one another. It has to be done intelligently, with dignity, with respect, and civility. So I want to thank you for calling in today. And I think we're going to go to a quick break and then to our next caller. Shelly, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Lou.
0: Okay, welcome back. And I just quickly want to say, Shelley, you know, hit us with a very, very good question today that I hope that there are follow-ups to. And I encourage you to continue to correspond with me. You can go to our website, betweenthelines.tv. I'm going to move on to our next caller, and that is Gino from California. Hi,
2: this is
0: Gino. Gino, how are you? And where are you right now, by the way?
2: Hi, Lou. I am in Los Angeles, California, Hermosa Beach, to be exact. Oh,
0: very familiar. Very familiar there. Dated a girl there.
2: Thank you for calling in today,
0: Gino. Um, I, have, I have quite an interesting relationship with the West Coast, with California in particular. I lived in Manhattan Beach. The contiguous town just, I guess, would be north or west, depending on how you're standing in California. But I'm right, very familiar yes. with uh, uh, Hermosa Beach. As I mentioned, I dated a young lady that lived there and probably still lives there. In any case, you have a question today, sir? I,
2: I, I do. Uh, and it's really in regards to the, the sort of uh, trend or movement to put in place vaccine passports or uh, some sort of vaccination proof uh, to sort of re-engage society on, on many levels. Uh, part of it's in relation to travel uh, and and there's issues around that, but then also in regards to other things that I really love to do, like, you know, going to concerts, going to sporting events, et cetera. Um, so I, I've done a lot of research and, and reading around the issue and, and there's there have been, I think, a lot of really good points brought up uh, in favor of why, you know, some sort of vaccine proof or some app that, that proves your vaccine status, you know, would be necessary to uh, reopen and reengage a lot of these things that we love uh, in life. Um, but then I've, I've read a lot also around why it's bad on multiple levels in terms of uh, uh, personal privacy issues uh, and then uh, some inequality issues uh, around certain segments of society that have less access to uh, to, to vaccinations uh, and, and parts of the world where, you know, a large percentage of the population won't be able to be vaccinated for, you know, probably uh, multiple years. So it, it seems like there's, you know, quite a, a tug of war between whether this is a good thing for society or whether it it, it raises uh, issues that you know we, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't cross if that, if that makes sense
0: yeah it's a good question Gino and um, it, I, I know it's going back and forth right now you know my personal opinion is part of the purpose of uh, providing people verification that they've been vaccinated is to try to put people at ease We want to start to take the the, the negativity out of this uh, experience we've had called a pandemic. And one of the ways is by allowing people the mechanism that would uh, just inform everyone that there's been some form of compliance with getting the vaccine. I don't necessarily see a downside or a violation of your civil rights. I just have a question. Like when they asked you to get your driver's license, you give a lot of information there. Were they concerned about your privacy and your driver's license. very simple. It's a privilege. You either comply or you don't. In this instance, you know, I don't know if the government should mandate it. That might be the question here, to be very candid with you. But I do think the notion of being able to provide proof of vaccination, especially with all of the, the stress and the tension and the disruption to the normal life, isn't necessarily a bad thing. And it would probably allow us to usher in some level of normalcy again. Um I, I heard this part of this, which is very interesting and very important, and that's the disproportionate access to vaccines in some of the minority communities. Let's right speak right to the problem. And, in fact, they have a higher mortality rate, which lends itself perhaps to the fact that their medical care isn't quite on standard or on par with the rest of better or more indigent parts of this country. So you're right about that. That's a really excellent point, a very important point, and it falls onto the shoulders of the political administrations in cities and states and even with the help of the federal government to make sure that everyone has equal access to this vaccination and in general in life you have equal access to living which is another discussion that i'm going to not bang you over the head with today but i do want to make you aware it's in the back of my brain every day it lends itself to something you alluded to and that's this word called disparity so you brought up a very good point especially people of different economic socioeconomic circumstances their ability to acquire a vaccine their ability to communicate or acquire the documents for example um, that would prove that they have uh, been vaccinated but ultimately you know we're electing people to run the country let's try something on for a change do your job and that's really with this with this lens uh, with this lens, you uh, know so that was yeah, a no, very good point you made think- buddy
2: I think you, uh, I, 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 I take on board all the things that you said, and, and, and generally I, I, I see the sense behind it. But there's, there's really a couple issues here. First of all, you know, the reason that we have in this country, and I'm really speaking about Americans, right? There's a set of, uh, you know, constitutional uh, protections and, and values that we espouse in this country that, that make this country great. And uh, one of them is uh, around HIPAA uh you know medical privacy um that's been time and again upheld you know legally as a, a a very important protection that we have uh personally right and then I think the second issue is uh around the notion of my body my choice there's a a a a legal basis for autonomy around decisions that we make. Uh, on our own okay and I think that uh, it, in in my study of the subject I, I believe that when courts look at cases where there's compelling arguments on both sides in one case we've got a a uh, public health uh, uh, motivation to require the passports and another side we've got you know issues around privacy and and personal protection that are uh, arguing against the requirement for vaccine passports, and I think the courts continually find that when, when we're stepping over the line of uh, personal autonomy and privacy, the Constitution mandates that we take the latter as the more important uh, legal standard. That but, we you know, let me let me just interrupt you, if
0: I may. I am I'm, I'm in sync with your thinking and what you're saying. My position is that it shouldn't be mandated that you have this passport, but I would think voluntarily people would want to have it so they could communicate to others that, you know, I'm safe in your environment. As far as mandating the vaccine, we don't mandate that you get flu shots. This is just another form or strain of something that infects the body. I agree with you. It's your right to determine whether or not you would elect to have the vaccine. That's clearly being demonstrated in the country today. There's a lot of people that are choosing not to take the vaccine. Some are banking on herd immunity. Some are just having aversion to vaccines. I have to make you laugh. I never got a flu shot. This is a little bit different because of the scope and the scale of this problem. You know, my concern, and I'm not so much concerned physically because I think I'm strong enough to fight off most things, although... You never can tell. You can end up having a pre-existing condition you're unaware of, and this helped bring it to light, or what we would say, open up Pandora's box. But, um, you know, I, I didn't get vaccinated uh, for the flu, but I did get this vaccine. I have to be candid with you, because what I am concerned about is the fact that they're reporting that as many as 30% of the people infected are asymptomatic. I would hate to give this to someone elderly, for example, or someone who unknowingly had a pre-existing condition and end up being the result of their demise. I or causing the demise. It just you know you have to ask yourself: Do you want to be part of the solution or part of the problem? Do you want to enter into a dialogue so we can work to something? That everybody's satisfied with, or we're going to bang heads. And I hope that we're not doing the, bed ha- uh, the, ba- the head banging exercise, which I don't think we are. You and I aren't. We're having a discussion. But it falls again onto the shoulders of the elected officials to have these conversations, and the media to present various sides, the pros and the cons. And you're absolutely correct. We must hold on to the interpretation of the Constitution and how that translates to your rights, regardless of what that means. But this thing about, um, you know, taking the vaccine voluntarily, it's up to you. to be very honest with you. Look, I, a big part of me wanted – I waited a very long time, uh, Gino, be very candid with you, uh, before I got vaccinated. I wanted to see its if, if impact or effect on people that were being vaccinated – I was looking at the herd immunity. I was doing a number of things. I'm not particularly fond of injecting things into my body or taking medications in general. That's just me personally. I'm not subscribing that to be anyone else's philosophy. I'm just telling you um, that's kind of how I feel about this. So I think we're in agreement. I think there has to be a conversation. We have to explore the, the violation of the Constitution and mandating Certain mechanisms, even if it's not this, it could be any number of things. You know, I don't want to go off on a tangent with you, which I'm famous for, but, you know, we can't seem to mandate you show identification to board or go into a voting booth and vote for the president. You can't get a driver's license without adequate identification. You can't board a plane. You can't, you can't, you can't, but we'll let you vote for the president. You know, So there's a lot of inconsistencies in the system. This is another one, perhaps, and one that has to be discussed intelligently and in a civil manner. And hopefully everyone will walk away uh, in a position that they're happy. But I think that position ultimately will translate to... An individual's right to choose if he wants to be vaccinated, that individual's right to choose if he wants to carry an identification card. And here's the caveat. Unless the government can unequivocally uh, present an argument that by not doing so, we're putting people at risk, and that's where the discussion has to be, and it has to be done civilly. So uh, that was a very good question. I I do understand your sensitivities also regarding, you know, people of, of indigent circumstance and it's going to have to be subsidized as most things in their neighborhoods. You know, so I, I don't want to go for on a tangent with you, but I do want to tell you something you're going to find interesting. You know, part of the issue with closing the schools in New York during this pandemic was a very sensitive issue. The public school system in the city of New York, for example, provides breakfast and lunch for many of these children that come to the classroom. When the schools closed that part of the exercise went away. And they did go out and put in facilities to help feed the children. You know, there's a whole bigger discussion about what we're going to do moving forward to create a little bit more equality in the way that we live in this culture. But listen, this was a very, very good question. It's not a hot potato today, but people are starting to discuss it. People have sensitivities about their constitutional rights. I don't think anyone, especially in our country, wants to be unnecessarily mandated to do or not do something, and I'm sensitive to that, and it applies to many, many issues uh, across the board. Mm -hmm. Listen, I want to thank you for that call, uh, Gino. It was very good. I hope you're having a, a great time in Southern California. It's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful, right beautiful state. i right next
2: to the ocean. I can't complain, Lou. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Likewise. Thank you. And I hope you call back again or communicate with us with the BetweenTheLines.tv. Thank you so much today, Ryan.
2: Will do, Lou. Have a great day.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will be right back after a break. We want to thank our sponsors. And then I think we're going to go into some emails or voicemails. Remember, you can communicate with us through our website, BetweenTheLines.tv. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. And I think I have a caller. I believe it's Ryan who's hiding out in Mexico somewhere. Ryan, you have a question for me today. That's right. I am calling you from across the border, Lou. Um, I do have a question, actually, because it's I can't really, you know, it's on here. Actually,
1: believe it or not, in Mexico. um, And it's on my mind. And it's if if it's true that Secretary of State John Kerry did indeed tell Iranian Foreign Minister
0: Javad Sarif, about Israeli strikes on Iranian interests in Syria, what should the implications be besides his obvious resignation from the National Security Council? I mean, you know, how far do we punish him for this? And then what about our trust with Israel moving forward in foreign relations? Very good question, Ryan. And and the simple first thing I'd like to state is I'm curious to know what prerogative the Secretary of State had in discussing any policies or practices of a foreign entity, number one. Number two, if in fact he did disseminate information regarding Israel's practices militarily, an investigation will confirm or deny that, which I believe is still underway I believe the Department of Justice should take a very close look at this. I don't want to say this is on the cusp of treason, although the Israelis might look at it that way because what we've harmed is their confidence in trusting us with sensitive information moving forward. Um, removal from office, if in fact this is true, it goes without saying. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. As far as any type of criminal penalty, that's going to be explored by the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it is a possibility. It all depends on the manner in which this investigation is conducted and the fruit of that investigation. But the most important thing at this point is we do not have confirmation if, in fact, this activity took place, and he's entitled to due process. I'm curious to know the impetus or source of this information was such a serious allegation and and the other question I have for Mr., for the Secretary of State possibly was the motivation behind this to how would you say um, galvanize a relationship regarding a discussion about the development of nuclear weapons or nuclear energy you know I'm curious to know if Kerry did this, why he would do it? You know, I don't. I don't understand the upside to it, and I don't understand how he could not um, anticipate a feeling of betrayal by the Israelis. You know, this is really interesting problem we're looking at right now. The most important thing at this point, though, be very candid with you: we have to confirm the truth attached to this because we're hearing things today. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You know, I tell people this in politics, and it's a very sad statement. If you run for office and we can't find something bad about you, we'll just make it up. And a certain demographic in this country, once it's communicated to them in the media, will automatically buy in. They'll accept it as being dogma. And that's one of the problems that we face. So we have to explore the credibility of the source of the allegation and then further look into the legitimacy of the allegation. And if, in fact, it's true, I think you know removal is the beginning of the process. I don't know how we mend this fence with israel who has relied upon us and us upon them to be very candid with you they're a very important strategic ally in the middle east no ifs ands or buts about it good question it's, well, uh, a, Luke, it's a work in progress ryan but go ahead buddy doesn't john kerry kind of have a history of this as well if if you want to start talking about politicians that put their foot their feet in their mouth you know i i hate to say this and i don't like being political but you know, the president has had a practice of saying things off-color, off-handed. I, I mean, I I, right. I think I think part of the problem, Ryan, is we elect these people and we have an expectation of them that they couldn't possibly live up to. You would think they would be better thought out. You think they would confer with people, individuals, groups, the president, whomever, before they would go in and delve into these areas that discuss highly sensitive information regarding military strategy of foreign countries. Would we like it if the secretary of state of a foreign country, right, started to discuss our military strategies. And I'm sure that they do. For example, I'm sure that China discusses military strategies we have with Russia, who's an ally, or say parts of the Ukraine, or any number of other countries that are adversarial to us. We expect that. But this is a little bit different because we're supposedly friendly to Israel. And this is a very um, confusing episode to to put it to you politely i do want to thank you ryan our producer for calling in thanks for that question it was a very good question and i think it's going to continue to play out and i'm i am anticipating you know what the investigation is going to bear regarding the legitimacy of this allegation thank you for calling in today ryan we have an email from darnell who's currently in las vegas his question is as follows. Do stricter gun control laws make it harder to put guns in the hands of good people? He cites the fact that bad people will always find a way to find and buy guns illegally, whereas good people, like me, are just using them to protect our families, themselves, and from bad people. So this is a really you know hot topic in the country today, gun control. To um, answer the first part of this question, the answer is yes, There's a concerted effort to put forth misinformation that lends itself that gun laws reduce crime. Gun laws do not reduce crime. Enforcement reduces crime. So if you're not part of the criminal society and we impose gun laws, there's no impact on you other than the fact that we're depriving you of a constitutional right, and more specifically, a concern that this gentleman has, and that's your ability to protect yourself and your family. Um, You're absolutely correct. We have a black market for firearms. We actually have gun task forces formed with the federal government and local and state police agencies tracking uh, across the state lines of of firearms. No secret. Um, It's very prevalent. And uh, what gun laws will eventually do if they were to be successful, and I want to tell you why they're not going to be in a second, is create a gigantic black market. Firearms are not going away. The low-end estimate of firearms in the United States is about 400 million. It goes as high as 600 million. The media has acknowledged the rough number of about 400 million. So my question is, with 800,000 law enforcement agents, for 335 million people, who's who's participating in this exercise? And you have to be mindful of the fact that a lot of law enforcement is pro-gun. They're not going to be inclined to be knocking on people's doors where they're not going to be welcome. Something else that's important to mention, and it kind of, uh, how would you say, accentuates the fact that our elected officials are not paying attention. They just came out publishing the fact that new gun buyers, first-time gun buyers, are above last year at this time, trending higher, along with additional NICS checks. NICS is a national instant criminal background check. You may buy 10 guns on one NICS check, by the way. So a NICS check doesn't mean you're buying one gun. Last year, we had over 40 million of them. So we had 40 million requests to purchase at least one gun with an X check. I think they need to take a good hard look at what we're talking about, dial back the rhetoric, try to create some type of atmosphere in this country that's more productive in managing this gun problem because we do have one. But the problem lends itself to the fact that we have people that are emotionally and mentally unstable acquiring them and then going out and carrying out this heinous act. Of mass shooting. The thing I think it's important to mention is that we've had firearms in this country since its inception. They bobbed along until about 1998 with the Columbine shooting without incident for the most part. We did have one shooting back in the 60s, the University of Texas. University of Texas excuse me. Uh, absent of that, we really didn't have mass shootings. So people are aware, this infamous um, Bushmaster AR-15 or Colt AR-15 or whatever the manufacturer is, this M4, has been available to the public since the early 60s. They had it approved by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms for its consumption by the public. It bobbed along for almost 40 years, basically, if I'm correct, without incident, and suddenly it made the radar screen, Columbine. So the question is, did the gun change or did the culture change? And I would say, logically, if your population grows from 200 million to 335 million, Coupled to that exponentially is the issue of mental illness. I personally think the mental health in this country is not good. If you want to ask me why that is, it's because of all the negativity you have jammed down your throat every day through Hollywood. And I hate to be critical because they do produce some very thought-provoking, insightful, you know, pieces of work. And they've got garbage out there, too, that are teaching our children the resolution to violence and injustice is violence. We also have video games, which are teaching our children how to weaponize. It teaches you weapons familiarization, tactics, everything you need to know to go out and basically address an aggressor. It's ridiculous what we're living today. So to go back to Darrell's question, uh, yes, they're tying your hands. Yes, the criminal element is still going to get firearms, and you are entitled to protect your family. That's all there is to it. You know, just very briefly, if we're going to talk about, for example, this M4, this assault rifle, it's responsible for less than... of the shootings in this country every year. The weapon of choice is the handgun. If you knew how many handguns were in this country today, it would appall you. Oddly enough, if you go to the West Coast, the weapon of choice is the AK-47. You know, I I don't know what to say to people that are running this country, but you need to pay attention. Uh, You know, if we're going to start to employ the policy of depriving you access to tools, for example... Well, when they start to keep up this trend of stabbing people in mass numbers, I guess we'll take your cutlery. We had people run down on the West Side Highway. We'll take your vehicles. We'll take your guns. So if we take your cutlery, your guns, and your vehicles, you're going to be safer. No, we're still going to have a mental illness problem, which ties back into the question about our institutions here, or in this instance, an institution that doesn't even exist. I don't know of the mental facilities that really can, uh, across, the broad, across the board, help the people in the streets every day that are, of, are mentally defective and emotionally defective. But, you know, we need to truthfully and objectively explore this whole gun discussion, not hamstring the people that are not part of the problem, enforce the law. Enforcement takes guns off the street, not gun laws if you're not in, if you're not in obeying gun law a highly likely you're going to highly unlikely I should say you're going to obey gun law b let 's be very candid here but again the politicians aren't concerned about that. This is all agenda driven and I, I do want to say this and I want to say this in the kindest terms. We have a tendency to become confused when we want a problem solve we try to intellectualize. You can't intellectualize every problem. You have to solve it through common sense, logic, reason, and the truth. And that's something that seems to be absent in the discussion of gun control. This was a great question, um, Darnell. I appreciate you presenting it in this email today, and I hope to hear from you again, and I continue to continue to continue to contact us. That's at BetweenTheLines.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go to an email right now and then shortly after that we're going to close the show. The email I want to read to you today is from a young lady, Jackie, although I'm assuming it's a Jackie. It could be a gentleman, but I'm going to assume it's a young lady, Jackie, from New Hampshire. And if it is a man, I apologize. In any event... It says with more than 30,000 immigrant children entering the United States illegally, how can a broken American foster system absorb this when they can't even handle the caseloads with our own foster children at their home? 100% correct. They can't. They can't. We did not anticipate or expect this convergence on the border, which we should have, plain and simple. If you start to look at a lot of the mechanisms in this country that are in place to aid people, for example, like our veterans, they're faltering. We don't really have a legitimate mechanism in place to aid or support the mentally ill. That happens to be factual. We're having a hard time educating children in this country, another institution that's faltering. So where anyone would come away with the idea that we would have the ability to facilitate care or assimilation of 30,000 migrant children into a foster care system is just a falsehood. It's ill-conceived, and this is a problem. The bigger question at this point is, you have 30,000 children, and I have a very soft spot in my heart for children because they're victims oftentimes of the big people. What do we do with them? Do we send them back to their home countries via Mexico and put them in harm's way? How are we going to manage this? The thing I would like to hear very candidly is a plan from the White House. As to what the, what they're they're going to do going forward with helping these children. As it is, you've got to afford the medical care, clothing, food. We should be engaging in some form of education or educational process with them so that we don't stagnate them at very you know important uh, developmental years. But what is the plan here, folks? You know, some of the children do have family here, so they can maybe um, reunite them with them. That that's not a heavy lift. The, the question simply stated, long term, we have 30,000 children. Oh, here's another question. Is the border still open for more children or more immigrants to cross into the United States? You know, I, I often, often ponder this question because, and this is a little bit of a tangent, so indulge, just indulge me. You look at what's going on in India. They're having a problem with this, with this virus. On a good day, India, India has a problem feeding its people. It has about 1.3 or 1.4 billion people. We need to start to monitor the migration process into this country. Are we going to become India at some point? Is the exercise to put a, million, a billion people in this country? Because if you follow what I've said in prior shows, in 1970, we had 200 million people. 2000, we had about 285 million people. We're up to approximately 335 million people. What's the number where we start to go like, guys, we got to be able to take care of everyone here rather than just continuously let them into the country? What I find interesting, independent of the discussion of the children, there are communities in this society we're not taking care of, and we now have the burden of caring for 30,000 migrant children from foreign countries. Guys, this has to make sense at some point, and I haven't even mentioned who's paying for this. That's the other part of this thing. Uh, it was a very good question. I, I appreciate you know this email being forwarded to me, and I encourage you to continue to communicate to me through our email, betweentheline.tv. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this was informative. I hope it was helpful. I hope it it gave you food for thought. And I hope it provides you an alternative to the rather, how would you say, contentious manner in which we deal with each other. You know, we need to have very calm, civilized, productive discussions that lend itself to problem solving. I hope to hear from you guys next week again. Thank you.